0: Uh, No shame in not being here personally today, and I uh, trust and and pray that people are online watching today. uh, uh, We were just commenting up here earlier about how much easier it is to to teach and to lead in worship and that sort of thing when there's somebody actually out there, uh, unlike our times during COVID when it was just, you know, a handful of people here, so... Kudos to the people who uh, are serving in tech and welcoming and, and all the other things. We appreciate them and appreciate all you showing up. Uh, hey, uh, as an administrative thing right now, uh, the nature of this message is uh, I've, I've got to, to rush through a bunch of points. So if you've got a handout, that's going to be very helpful, especially in the latter part. If you're uh, at home and, and watching Uh, Larry tells me that the handout is on the website, and if you can navigate between watching uh, or if you can get there and get it printed out uh, without losing the signal, uh, please do that. Uh, So uh, the title that we've selected for today is, Can We Trust the Bible That Tells Me So? All right? Uh, Last week, Mike uh, wisely recommended that we focus on this new year on on following Jesus. And as adults, we need to model to the young what it means to follow Jesus daily. And of course, it's always best if we start very young. There is no more quintessential early Sunday school song than Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now, you don't really hear older students, and maybe not a lot older, sing that song, not because it's not true, but precisely because it is associated with very, very young children who trust just about anything you'll say. They're they tend to be pretty naive. But as they grow older, that naivete wanes. And we expect them and hope that they will start thinking for themselves, which is a good thing. Uh, however, in today's world, it doesn't take a rocket surgeon to understand that there are many voices speaking into them today. And the result is might be exemplified in one finding about the beliefs of young people in evangelical churches. A recent compilation of studies found that uh, more than 60% of church-going people between the ages of 18 and 39 who claim that Jesus has saved them also believe that Muhammad and Buddha are equally valid paths to salvation. Think about that. What that tells me that many, if not most, of the young people in churches today, for them, inclusion is much more important than what the Bible actually says, what Jesus actually said, which is, I am the way, the life, the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, as kids grow, we as parents should be giving them reasons for the hope that lies within for their faith. If we do not, there's at least a couple of possible scenarios. First, uh, they can be challenged by peers and skeptics and doubters who would ask them, why do you believe in God? And we want them to know the reason why they believe there's a creator who loves them and gives them purpose in life, of course. But ask yourself, if you've got children, if if someone were to ask my child that question, would he or she be able to give an answer anything beyond because that's what I was always taught? Just as importantly, if not more so, would he or she be able to give an attractive response that would draw the one asking the question to that same truth? Another scenario might be as a result of such challenges or just by looking around and and the simple observations of a young person who sees that, frankly, most of the world does not know or care what the Bible says and does not honor God in any way, shape, or form. A young person may realize that what he or she was taught and believes prevents him or her, from having all the fun that those who reject the Bible seem to be having in the moment, especially when he or she does not know the evidence for faith in Christ. So do your children, beyond that, have a response when challenged by statements like, the Bible condones slavery? is sexist and portrays women as inferior, is harsh or even hateful towards those who are born with a different orientation or felt gender. Can they respond to those statements? Now, let's think about this. If the choice for one approaching adulthood is either throwing out what she was taught in Sunday school because she really never developed a foundation for those beliefs, or rejection by the kids having all the fun which one would you expect your young person to choose at least once they leave your home, if not before? Young people tend to be inquisitive about the world, especially when they realize that people have different views. They can have questions that, if left unanswered, can lead to self-doubt or withering in the face of challenges that they can't answer. So in the series that I've been going through called Head to Heart, we've tried to focus on both word and spirit, truth and love, Bible knowledge and relationship because they're both necessary. This message today is going to be more factual. I kind of mentioned that earlier. Truth-oriented. But we're going to come back around to relationship. Let me start with a hypothetical. Okay? Imagine that you volunteered and are now serving as a leader of a young teen Sunday school or a youth group. And like most of those groups, you've got a mix of people. You've got some from solid Christian families, you know, what we would call first chair families. But you've got others from maybe nominal Christian families. They might be saved, but they've they've compromised. They don't really care that much. And you probably have some from what we call third chair families who really don't have any claim to Christ, they don't claim Christ at all, but yet they allow their kids to come to your group because they want their kids to be with the good kids rather than the alternative. Of course, being dutiful, one of your goals is to help these other kids come to Christ, great goal. So. You pull out your leather-brown book, and you hold it up. And you say, can anybody tell me what this is? Okay? And, of course, the guy in the back who's always cutting up with his friend says, "Ah, uh, a Bible maybe? And you respond with equal sarcasm, astute observation, Einstein. But let me tell you what it is. This is God's instruction book for life. It's our roadmap to heaven, God's love letter to us, and how we get to know him. You pause for a fact. Then you say, so if you don't read this book, like we tell you in church often, you can't really know him. And the kids from the first chair families all nod in agreement. After a pause, a young lady from one of these other families meekly sticks up her hand and says, may I ask a question? And you get excited because you've piqued her interest. And then she asked, are you saying that if you don't have a Bible, like so many people in third world countries, that you cannot know God? But before you can even put together your thoughts, Einstein in the back says, hey, yeah, I want to know, do we really have the whole Bible? Maybe there's 12 commandments and we only got 10. And you know, the Bible that I just got for Christmas says in the front that it was published just a few years before I was born. How do we know that the Bible that I'm reading today is the one that they wrote many, many years ago? So you're the leader. Can you answer those questions? If you're not up to the task, how would you expect your kids to be? These are valid questions. If we want our young to have deep and lasting biblical convictions, they need to be answered. Willie addressed this topic about three weeks ago. I'm going to have a couple of commercial breaks during this message. And my first one is about an event. yeah we had a group here maybe yeah quite a bit smaller than even what's here today uh and i went up to him afterwards and said, you know Will, i'm going to be teaching on this in in Jan- in january i said i don't have any problems because most of the people you know that need to hear this are not here <laughs> and i hope that there's a bunch of people out there listening because if this is important to you you should be taking every opportunity these guys put a lot of work into that sunday school as mike was mentioning Don't do it for them. Do it for you and your family. Show up. Learn as much as you can. Uh, And here's the deal. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, the New Testament, Ephesians 6, says it is our responsibility as parents, especially fathers, to train our children in the world. Yeah, we can enlist trusted teachers, but we must take hold, we must grasp that responsibility. And for all of us, 2 Timothy 2 says that we are all, as mature believers, to disciple others. So if you want to pass on your faith to your children or others, you should take advantage of the great teachers that we have in Sunday school because I doubt that any church, certainly any church of our size, has the kind of quality teaching that we have here in our Sunday school program. I know that a lot of people get tired of my military references But let me give you one more. The more you sweat in training, the less you bleed in battle, okay? Think about that. If we truly want our young to use the Bible as their roadmap for life, leading to eternity with the Father, if we want our kids to not only know what they believe, but why they believe it, they need to understand the source of that belief. and that it can be trusted. Now, you don't need to master all the information and the evidence that we're going to talk about today in order to be saved. Simple, genuine faith in Christ as paying for your sins and repentance for those is all that's necessary. But if you want your kids and others around you to be really saved, if you want to pass on biblical faith, for your kids to have biblical convictions, if you want your kids and others to be able to stand against the culture when challenged, if you want your family to be a light to a lost and hell-bound world, your kids, you and I, need to have this confidence deep within because there are arguments and accusations being made by unbelievers, and even some within seminaries and churches that question the reliability and the inerrancy of God's word. And it's a bit naive for parents to think that their kids will not run into these arguments. Not if, but when they do, will they fail to make a defense to those for the reason for the hope within them? Or worse, Will they surrender, walk away from their faith, rather than face ridicule, cancellation, or maybe even persecution? This is exactly why Christy and I uh, facilitate a course for high school students called Getting to the Gospel. And in that course, we present the foundational evidence that displays the the biblical worldview matches reality and science better than any other. And we teach three basic principles that God exists, that the Bible's reliable, and that Jesus is the Son of God and our Savior. We also try to train these young people in how to engage in a relational way so that they can not be just faithful but effective in their witness, how to present the truth in love. Many of the young people that attend here have been in that course, and and, uh, you can ask them or their parents if they think it was worthwhile. You know, kids who grow up in church don't always hold these truths for a reason, because they need assurance that it's true in order to stand against the cultural winds or even just their own doubts. Paul warns us that persecution is inevitable if we live a godly life in Christ Jesus. He then exhorts us in the face of persecution to, quote, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So again, ideally this starts young. And within loving families, this can happen naturally with the very young who trust their parents. Yeah, you know at least by the age of two that they're all little sinners. Yeah. However, as time goes on and they see mom and dad with their noses in their Bibles or holding hands in prayer when they can't interrupt, if they see other family members giving and seeking forgiveness, demonstrating love by preferring one another and serving one another in real ways, they are much more likely to follow your example as they grow. So developing genuine relationships of trust more and, are, is more and more important as they become more and more independent. And this is the other aspect of the meaning of the Bible that is vital to our understanding of its importance. Even though it sounds strange, relationship, is baked into God's word. So listen listen to me here. The Bible certainly is God's instruction manual for life. But if we continue in 2 Timothy 3, it says there that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This tells us that all scripture is for the purpose of showing us what is best for us so the parables the admonitions the precepts the commands all throughout all those god is essentially telling us that follow this path don't go there treat others this way love like this the purpose of this instruction is not to restrict us but to protect and provide what is in our best interest and god set down these markers of protection in the book of deuteronomy i won't go through all of them Here, because of time but in Deuteronomy 10 12 uh, uh, it is he he makes it clear this is for your good in Deuteronomy 11 11, he says that you can have blessing with obedience or curse if you disobey in Deuteronomy 30 uh, I have I've set before you life and death blessing and curse and curse therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live love God obey his voice for he is your life and length of days. Why is this not a no-brainer? I suspect, my take is, that it's because we are distracted by the temptations of the world to be doing this or to have that. Some will say that following the Bible is just rule-keeping. Let's be honest. Uh, We are all... We all would generally recognize that following the rules, whether by parents or by God, generally makes things turn out better. But what has the power to bless or curse us? Is it the rules? Is it the words of the Bible? Now, this may sound strange coming from the pulpit of a church that emphasizes the Bible as we do. But the words of Scripture in and of themselves do not protect and provide for us. Rather, the authority and the power of Scripture to protect and provide comes from the author of the book. By his nature and character, God defines what is good, true, and right. James tells us in chapter 1 of his, his epistle, it is God above who tells us whatever is good and perfect. His, his word reflects who he is, perfect righteousness. Psalm 19 tells us that God's commands and law are perfect, trustworthy, right, clear, and true because they are the qualities and character of the lawgiver, God himself. Now, the Bible does not possess these qualities. Rather, it derives them from God, the author. Knowing and obeying God's word brings the benefits of wisdom, joy, insight, peace of mind, clear conscience, self-acceptance as God's creation, and good relationships. It doesn't make life perfect, but it protects us, if we follow it, from certain curses or harms for not following him, like guilt, crippling anxiety, loneliness, and damaged relationships. In short, the Bible is God's revelation of himself, a personal God who talked face to face with Moses and who is jealous that we worship no other god, no other idol, whether cults, false teachers, antichrist power, material riches or lust. He wants an exclusive relationship with us so that we can enjoy all the benefits of that relationship. The Bible therefore has a relational purpose. And coming to know our Father through the Bible is a relational act. It brings both blessing and eternal life. In John 17, uh, it records the prayer of Jesus just before his betrayal and arrest. And there he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So to pass on our faith to the young, they need to see God's word as the revelation of the Father who desires a relationship with them. We want them to be rock solid and confident in the words of the song, Jesus loves me, this I know. And for that to happen, they must be rock-solid confident in the reliability of the words of the book that tells me so. And You know, it doesn't take us, we don't have to go very far to see what happens if, God, if God's word was not reliable or was completely forgotten. And in Second Chronicles 34, it records that when eight-year-old Josiah became king of Judah, the people had long forgotten God's commands and were engaged, engaged in idol worship and evil. And, but Josiah wanted to return to the God of his forefather David because he knew something was, was off. So he tore down the, the altars to the idols and he began to rebuild the temple. Then one day, a scroll was discovered containing the book of the law that had been given to Moses, but which had laid unread for many years. So Josiah read it, and he was jolted into action because he knew that, quote, great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. So in Josiah's situation, the word had been completely lost and forgotten. But think of the consequences that the Bible had been distorted or misrepresented intentionally, or just inaccurately copied over many centuries. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us up front that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days, he has spoken to us by his son. However, if the scriptures were not recorded accurately, or there were additions or deletions, just copying errors, how can we rely upon our Bible today. If we don't have an accurate record of what God communicated through the writers of the Old and New Testament, we could be unsure of what God really wants of us, or worse, we could be courting disaster just like Josiah discovered. It says in Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration, and all account of evil. Of your deeds because you have forsaken me. He's pretty serious about this, about knowing what he wants us to know. Jesus reassures us that until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished in Matthew 5. And then in Matthew 24, he tells us heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You know, we can also find security that throughout history, tyrants, dictators, and even religious leaders of the world have tried to ban, stamp out, burn, and discredit God's Word. Yet, it remains the most printed book in the history of the world, estimated at more than 5 billion copies. So for the the balance of this message, we're going to summarize how we can be assured of the reliability by seeing how the integrity of the Bible has been protected. Clearly, God wants us to know him well and to be rock-solid sure that he wants a personal relationship with each and every one of us. So, uh, Orthodox Christians hold that the original manuscripts, or they're called autographs, were inspired by God. Problem is, none of those autographs exist today. Why? Because ink fades. Parchment or other materials on which it was written, deteriorates over time. Therefore, copies had to be handwritten. And this leads to the argument that in the process of copying errors could have been made or worse, a copier could have added or deleted portions of the autographs. These are the kinds of arguments that young people will hear at college or even in some seminaries. Do our young people have the confidence in the reliability of the Bible? Do you? Let's start with the Old Testament. And it seems pretty logical that the older any text is, the harder it is to confirm its reliability in the present. Yet we serve a God who made provision for his preservation uh, from the beginning through many centuries of copying and distribution. He did this through his chosen people, the Jews. We see this in the passage with which we started this series a year ago on this Sunday uh, in Deuteronomy 6 where he says, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, walk by the way, lie down when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, God really wanted them to know his word. And the Jews were given a mission to love God with all of their being and to follow his commands. To know they to, to follow, they needed to know. To know, they needed to meticulously copy God's word through the centuries. And to, to copy, they developed a special class of people called scribes. Now, we tend to associate scribes with legalism as when Jesus calls out the scribes and Pharisees for their hypocrisy. Yet through the centuries the scribes performed a valuable function of copying God's word through stringent discipline using rigorous rules of copying. Willie went over some of these. I'll just repeat a few of them. These rules allowed them to have confidence that their, their copy had equal authority with that of the parent, the autograph. Uh, one was that each Uh, page must have a consistent number of columns throughout the book there had to be uniform spacing between each letter uh, to avoid illegibility Uh, nothing could be copied from memory only letter by letter the number of times that each letter of the alphabet occurs in the copy must match the number of times that it occurred in the autograph and if a manuscript contained one mistake it was thrown out. Now, these rules have been known for many centuries, uh, but up until about 75 years ago, the most recent manuscript of the Old Testament we had uh, was dated at about 900 AD, about 1,100 years ago. But in 1947, a shepherd boy stumbled upon the greatest manuscript discovery of all time in a cave west of the Dead Sea. And there preserved in sealed jars, they found uh, 223 Old Testament manuscripts dating from 125 B.C., okay? So a thousand years before the most recent copy that we had up to that point. Once translated and compared to the modern version, the Hebrew Bible proved to be identical word for word in more than 95% of the texts that we have today. The 5% variation was mostly in spelling differences, none of which altered the clear meaning of the present day text. So in other words, this discovery puts to rest any serious question about the accurate relay of the oldest of the biblical texts. Of course, the, Jews, the Jewish scribes did not preserve the New Testament, but God provided many other ways for us to have complete confidence in the New Testament. And we're gonna go over more than a dozen of these insurances, kind of rapid fire, uh, to, to help us understand why we can trust the New Testament. You know, most of us are not gonna remember these things. Uh, uh, however, we should be aware that there are good reasons that we can give others, if we do a little research, to trust the Bible. Both you and your children need to be aware that these assurances exist, and that's what we put on the handout, just in outline form. Uh, The first is that multiple independent writers were used to give us a book that is coherent. Now, we tend to think of the Bible as a book, Uh, and it is today but that book is a collection of poems and letters and historical documents that span thousands of years of human history so there's really as you know 66 books in the bible but they were written by oh, by 40 different authors. we think 35 of which we're sure of and they offer us a remarkably coherent story from beginning to end now when we're evaluating a new testament ran- manuscript we should judge that manuscript just as we would any other historical document in antiquity. And one mark of reliable documentation is that multiple independent sources wrote in harmony and it it is coherent, it all fits together. Secondly, we have thousands of New Testament manuscripts with the shortest gaps in antiquity. There there are a couple of ways that historians uh, evaluate reliability of ancient texts and one is the number of manuscripts or copies that we have today you might say what difference does it make you got a bunch of wrong copies well it's important because when you have multiple ancient copies of a document it's easier to compare them and see where the variations in the text may occur so for instance uh, we have over 1,000 known copies of homer's work Homer was the author, and and, and the biggest chunk of those was his Iliad. Uh, This is by far the most copies of any ancient author. By comparison, the next closest is the writings of Demosthenes. We have just 300 copies of those. Then there are the writings of Roman uh, Tacitus. We have 20. Julius Caesar, we have just 10. Thucydides and Herodotus, we have just 8. And uh, for those of you who studied philosophy, Pliny and Plato come in at just seven copies. Here's the deal. No one disputes the authenticity of those manuscripts. No one. They take them at face value. When it comes to the New Testament, we have over 5,800 whole or fragments of the, the original Greek Bible. When you count other languages like Latin, Syriac, Coptic, and Arabic, there are more than 20,000 copies of the New Testament. New Testament scholar Daniel Wallace puts it this way, the average classical Greek writer has less than 20 copies of his work still in existence. Stack them up and they're four feet high. If you stack up the copies of the New Testament manuscripts, they would be over a mile high. The other measure of reliability is the length of time between the original writing and the earliest copy that we have today. And obviously, the closer those two are together, the more reliable historians consider the copy. Of those that I just mentioned, of those authors already, uh, they're mostly 1,000 years between the original writing and the earliest copy that we have. The shortest gap is 400 years for Homer's Iliad. The longest gap we have for New Testament translations is 400 years, with most at about 225 years and some fragments as close as 50 years. In short, by the standards of modern non-Christian historians, no other book of the ancient world comes close to the reliability of the New Testament text but they were also written soon after the actual events. Now we've got good evidence to suggest that the New Testament was written before 70 AD. Now that's not a unanimous opinion, but there's there's a reasonable basis for that based upon the facts. After a Jewish uprising against the Romans in 66 AD, the Roman emperor dispatched his general, Titus. This is not the Titus in the, in the Bible, uh, but he, he dispatched this general to regain control of the region. And there was, there was a conflict for about four years. And finally, in 70 AD, Titus surrounded the city of Jerusalem, attacked, destroyed the city, and burned the temple, the Jewish temple to the ground. Now, these are not minor incidents. The temple was the center of Jewish culture and the home of Judaism. Yet, none of the New Testament authors even mentions these events when most of the New Testament believers were Jews at this point. In fact, John 5 contains the following passage. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five color covered colonnades. His description of the temple is in the present tense. So that suggests that he wrote these words before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And that's important because most scholars believe that John's was the last gospel written well after the the other gospels and the book of Acts. The New Testament reads like a collection of eyewitness accounts about the life and teaching of Jesus. The earliest believers accepted the gospels and letters of the New Testament as eyewitness accounts because the authors of those texts considered their own writings to be eyewitness accounts. You see this in 1 Peter 5. Therefore, I exhort exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. 2 Peter 1 For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were witnesses of his majesty. 1 John 1, what was from the, the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. This is an interesting one. The Bible contains nitty gritty details which are easily disprovable if false. You know, those eyewitnesses accounts are important, but the evidence of reliability goes much deeper. Details count, and the New Testament has many. Uh, In his book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, uh, Norm Geisler and Frank Turek list 84 specific documented details found by a classical scholar uh, Colin Hemer. just in the last 16 chapters of the book of Acts. They include the names of specific people, places, and other details that have been confirmed by history and archaeology. The, the gospel of John by itself contains another 59 confirmed nitty-gritty details. Second commercial break. Uh, this book is the one I just referred to. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, and it is the most complete and easy to understand compilation of all the arguments that you might encounter. So I highly recommend it uh, to use, you know, just to, just to have something you don't have to plow through a lot. It's very, very helpful. Now, none of these details are the kinds that someone would make up. If you're lying, the last thing you want is to include details that can be checked out and found lacking which would destroy your credibility. Uh, There is no other set of ancient manuscripts that contain the level of historically verifiable authenticity as does the New Testament. We have not just Christians, but non-Christians confirm the most important details. There are so far 10 non-Christian sources who mention Jesus within the first Within 150 years of his life. And these authors had no motive to confirm anything about Jesus, but they confirm what the New Testament says about his life and death. By contrast, only nine non Christian sources even mention the Roman emperor at that time, Tiberius Caesar. There's no reason that these non Christian sources would confirm these details contained in the New Testament unless they were actually true. Uh, the New Testament uh, fathers, or the, er- the early church fathers, reconstructed, and we can use their own testimony uh, from their quotes. Between uh, 95 and 110 AD, three leaders, Clement, Ignatius, and Polycarp, uh, uh, cited the, nearly the entire New Testament, uh, all except the, the books of Jude and Second John. And since they were quoting the new testament letters this serves as further evidence that these letters must have been written well before 100 a.d historical and archaeological evidence corroborates the new testament Uh, there are 30 people mentioned in the new testament whose names and positions have been verified by history and archaeology you know we for instance we have the actual ossuary which is a a burial box of bones for the high priest Caiaphas who condemned Jesus to death. Now, you've all heard the story in Luke 2, you just probably read that recently, uh, you know, about the Christmas story. But skeptics note that there was actually no archeological evidence that a ruler named Pontius Pilate even existed until just about 60 years ago when two Italian archeologists found a Latin inscription engraved on a stone authenticating the name and the title of Pilate, the Roman governor who allowed Jesus to be crucified. Lots of other examples uh, from archeology. span We mentioned the Pool of Bethesda, that was excavated in 1888. The Pool of Siloam was uncovered in 2004. Uh, In Luke 2 again, it mentions when Quirinius was governor of Syria, though there was no record of a Quirinius until a coin and a statue of him were discovered just in the last 20 years. And many considered Luke to be inaccurate in Luke 3 when he made reference to a tetrarch by the name of Licinius because the only Licinius known in that era of history died in 36 BC. However, an inscription mentioning King Licinius was later discovered very near Damascus, Syria, placing this later Licinius in the early 1st century AD and totally consistent with the account in Luke 3. There are nine specific Old Testament prophecies that foretell the origin, the nature, and the life of Jesus of Nazareth. They were written between several hundred and a couple of thousand years before his birth. Yet they predict the events of his life with great accuracy. You see this in Daniel 7, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, um, and other passages. They're so accurate that many believe they were written after uh, the death of Christ. Again, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 put that notion to rest. In all, uh, Bible scholar Barton Payne identified 71 Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Here's a good one. The New Testament contains embarrassing details. If you're going to make up or embellish a story about a hero, a heroic figure and his followers, You probably wouldn't include details that would put them in an unfavorable light that would embarrass them, but that's exactly what the New Testament manuscripts do. His followers are more like the keystone cops and at times cowards. Uh, The New Testament reports that his disciples, even his own family, had doubts about Jesus. Some called him a drunkard and even demon-possessed. But most amazingly, he suffered the worst kind of defeat any devout Jew could ever imagine, being hung on a tree, which was the ultimate curse in the Jewish culture. These are not the kinds of things that anyone would make up to convince you that their hero was a god. Rather, these are the kinds of things that a writer includes because he is documenting events that actually occurred. Along the same lines, the New Testament writers make Jesus a very difficult teacher to follow. Think about what he said. He set new and unattainable standards for justice, judgment, lust, marriage, finances, and love. Try to imagine a politician who exhorts you to follow him by imposing those kinds of standards on you and others. It just doesn't make any sense unless the writers were telling the truth. There's a chain of custody that confirms the content of the originals. Uh, there's a monastery of St. Catherine which contains the oldest known complete copy of the New Testament. And it's called the Codex Sinaiticus because the monastery is located in the Sinai Peninsula. And scholars dated it at about 350 AD. That's great. But how do we know it contains what the original authors wrote? J. Warner Wallace, a retired Los Angeles cold case detective, applies his methods of investigation and evaluating evidence to the biblical manuscripts. And in his book, Cold Case Christianity, he connects the dots between the New Testament authors and their students that lead directly to the Codex Sinaiticus. He shows that we have a reliable chain of evidence between the words of the oldest copy of the New Testament, incomplete, and the men who wrote the words contained in it. So this one's a little hard to understand, but, but listen up. The, the New Testament contains undesigned coincidences that verify its authenticity. You know, One of the most powerful ways to tell if uh, a story is authentic is to compare how different eyewitnesses tell it. If the accounts are exactly the same, what do you suspect? Collusion, right? They've been talking to each other. Okay? If they're totally contradictory... You're pretty sure that somebody's lying, right? However, if they tell the same, the same stories from a different point of view, that's a hallmark of authenticity. This is especially true if one version inadvertently provides complementary details to another. Some scholars call this undesigned coincidences. Uh, an example of this we read in Matthew's account of Jesus' appearance before the Sanhedrin in uh, chapter 26. So the account says that they spit in his face, they strike him with their fists, they slap him, and then they say, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? Now think about that information that you've been given. That's an odd thing for someone to ask someone who just slapped you across the face. Uh, But then we read the account in Luke chapter 22, that before the leaders began questioning Jesus, they blindfolded him, a fact omitted by Matthew. Now this is a coincidence that no one planned. It's a powerful indication that the accounts are real, and the Bible is littered with these kinds of harmonizing features. Finally, the New Testament, because of its reliability, verifies the Old Testament All that we've said here uh, helps us understand that it's clear that we can trust the New Testament. Its reliability is beyond dispute. Again, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's the highest standard known by man for when you don't have objective evidence, when you don't see it, when you can't measure it. And that means we can trust its purpose to give account of the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ who is exactly who he said he was. And if he's exactly who he said he was, that means the Old Testament is also reliable for many of the same reasons. And in addition, Jesus certifies, he verifies, he authenticates the Old Testament. In John 5, he said, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You know, no serious scholar denies that Jesus lived and died by crucifixion. Not all scholars believe that he rose from the dead. And in our course for young people, we use the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt when looking at the different worldviews and the evidence on both sides. The evidence for the resurrection is another part of that course for which we don't have time today. But the fact that Jesus rose from the dead confirms that he is the Son of God and our Savior. You know, if you look around, you can find plenty of great resources to give you more details about these issues beyond what I've given you today. So be good Bereans. Check them out. Study them so that you can have confidence in the fact that there are plenty of reasons we can trust the New Testament. For young people growing up in a world that is skeptical, even antagonistic to biblical truth, knowing that they can trust the Bible will fortify them to stand strong when they're challenged. and It will give them confidence to share the good news that Christ brings to all who believe on him. So, if you can bring up a passage here while the worship team comes up. Uh, I selected... Uh, a passage from the New Testament, which is kind of about truth, and one from the Old Testament, which is kind of about spirit, kind of opposite what you might think. So let's say it together, if you can read it. Oh, please stand. Thank you. Together. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my